to you. My name's Neil, I'm married to the amazing and wonderful Kate, and together we do our level best to serve this wonderful community of faith here at Southwest London Vineyard. If you're new or visiting, you are very, very welcome, as Kate said. We'd love to connect with you, so do come and find us afterwards. We'd love to help connect you with the body of Christ, the church, somehow, whether that's here or somewhere else, it really doesn't matter. But we'd love to uh, meet with you and connect with you. So do come and find us afterwards and we'll be over there by the, by the coffee. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Colossians chapter two. We're gonna carry on our series, the book of Colossians, and we're gonna start in Colossians chapter two, starting in verse 16. The words should miraculously appear behind me. Verse 16, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regards to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They've lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all uh, destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship and their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. If you've been here for the past couple of weeks, you'll uh, know that the Colossian church has got itself into a little bit of a mess. Uh, and they've basically been distracted from Jesus and the centrality of the Christian faith. And Paul, who, uh, as you know, is in prison, He's heard about this, uh, he's heard about what's going on, and so he's dispatched this letter that he's written with Epaphras, who's actually the chap, he's from Colossae, and he planted the church. He sent this letter with Epaphras to try and encourage the church uh, in Colossae to get back to the gospel. And all Paul really does in this letter is he's simply directing them back to Jesus. That's what it's all about. He's simply calling them back to the Lord. He's saying Jesus is all we need. Here are some people in the church, they've, they've come to faith and experienced the life-changing, transforming power of Jesus, but somewhere along the line, something's happened and they've kind of moved away. They've gravitated away from Jesus. They've been pulled away and somehow they've lost the centrality and the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus. And the wonderful message of this letter is that Jesus is just constantly calling us back to him all the time, and he does so lovingly, uh, graciously, and mercifully. So we're going to take a look at this passage, and this passage is really all about religion. It's all about 
religion. And uh, as you probably know, uh, a lot of people aren't always polite about religion. Uh, Karl Marx famously said, religion is the opiate of the masses. Uh, Freud said, all religion is just an infantile projection onto a make-believe divine father figure. Uh, theologian Karl Barth said, uh, religion is unbelief. Bonhoeffer said, what we need is a religionless Christianity. Um, even Jesus has a problem with uh, religion. Everyone else kind of venerated this serious religious elite sort of knocking around at his time. You know, there was the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law, and they were all known for all of their religious deeds and their rules and their regulations and all that kind of stuff. And yet in Matthew chapter 6 and Matthew 23, Jesus launches an attack on them and says, don't be anything like them. And what Jesus is saying is, if you want to get right before God, don't take these religious men as your model. In fact, have nothing to do with them. Jesus castigates them for their fasting and for their prayers and for their public shows of devotion and their theology. Clean vessels on the outside, filthy on the inside. Whitewashed tombs, he calls them. In Matthew 23, seven times, Jesus says against them, woe to you, rebuking them for their religion. Paul also has a problem with religion. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul presents uh, his religious CV, and it's, it's pretty impressive. I mean, it's fairly impressive. He says, I'm a Jew, born of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised according to the law, faultless, humble, uh, a member of the Pharisees, the most religious and like the most religious and scrupulous elite of all the religious sects, and yet that's his CV. And what does he say about it? What does he think about religion? He says it's garbage. And you know the word used in the NIV doesn't quite convey what he really means. What he's saying is it's literary excrement and Paul had a nose for these things uh, he could smell it a mile off and uh, he can smell it in the church in Colossae and in, uh, in chapter 2 verses uh, 16 to 23 what we see is Paul laying out exactly what's going on and what's going wrong in this church in Colossae and, and at the heart of it is this fact really that they've rejected relationship with God with religion and verse 16 starts off with the word, therefore. And, you know, whenever we see the word, therefore, we need to ask what it's there for. Uh, really, what we need to be asking is, okay, well, what went before? What's the context? And so just looking back at the previous few verses and just skimming over it quickly, uh, from chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, uh, Paul is talking about their need to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. He's saying, having received... Christ Jesus is Lord. He's saying you're to continue in your faith, rooted and grounded and built up in the Lord. And then in verses 9 and 10, he talks about the fact that they have already received fullness from Christ, who is the fullness of God. You've already received fullness from Christ, who is the fullness of God. Why are you adding in all this other stuff? 
And so all this religious activity that they're doing, you know, it's utterly pointless, a total waste of time because fullness has already been given to them in and through and by Christ who is the fullness of God. Verses 11 and 12, Paul goes on to describe how we are to respond to Christ by faith and then we trust him and unite with him in and through faith and through uh, symbols like baptism. And then verses 14 and 15, it's all about the work of Calvary. It's all about the cross, where it was through Jesus Christ and through him alone, the the punishment that we deserved. He has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The punishment that we all deserved for our sin was laid upon him. And we are acquitted. We are set free. We are given fullness of life. That's the context and basically Paul's saying it's all about Jesus it's all about Jesus Jesus is all we need nothing else no one else simply Jesus and so when Paul says in verse uh, 16 therefore what he means is you know like guys given all of this stuff that's gone before all of the stuff I'm talking about given the fact that Jesus is the Lord given the fact that we've been forgiven and set free from the demands of law and sin and death and hell in and through and by the work of Jesus Christ. Given that our lives are now hidden uh, with Christ in God and that we've surrendered our lives to him through faith and belief and baptism, we've died to our old self and risen to the new person, Paul is saying, therefore, all of this has got to somehow impact your life. Our lives must look different but the problem with these Colossians is that their lives weren't looking very different at all they're still trying to jump through all of these hoops in the hope that God will kind of notice them somehow that he will approve of them somehow he'll look down from on high and say oh there's my beloved son jumping through all the right hoops well done They're still giving their lives to doing um, all the same stuff that everyone in their society and around them was doing. Essentially, they kind of split two ways. There was a whole bunch of them who'd gone like down a religious route, and there was a bunch of them who kind of were still behaving like pagans. Either way, not many of them were living like Christ's death and resurrection had made the slightest difference in their lives. Uh, Paul describes it in verse 23 as he says, self-imposed worship, false humility. And apparently, um, brains far bigger than mine tell me that this, what this really means is self-imposed religion. And so even though they were going through the motions, you know, showing up at the right time, um, at the right place, singing the song, you know, that we said from a couple of weeks ago from chapter one, saying all the right things, none of it meant anything. It was all kind of shallow and empty and meaningless, hollow. Because they've exchanged their relationship with Jesus with mere religious observance. Okay, that's a bit of an introduction. Should we dig in? Go a bit deeper, if we can. Uh, beginning, what Paul is saying is, uh, Paul is basically saying religion, you know, it's oppressive. Verse 16, it says, don't let anyone judge you. And then in verse 18, he says, don't let anyone disqualify you. And then in verse 21, he talks about having to submit to these rules and these regulations. You know, don't touch, don't eat, don't do this, don't do that, don't do the other. One of the worst traits of um, religion, in my humble opinion, is this judging. 
It's the judging, the judgment, the disqualification of others. Uh, it's the intimidation, the bullying, uh, the threats, the oppression, the manipulation and control. All of those things can so easily come out of a religious atmosphere. And those things can very often be carried out by those, very sadly and tragically, in positions of leadership. And this is basically what's happened in Colossae. Religious leaders have come in from somewhere and they've abused their positions of leadership, essentially for their own gains, to manipulate the church there. Unless we think that this has nothing to do with us, um, this is just some story that happened in a church somewhere in modern Turkey some 2,000 years ago, um, this is happening in churches across the world today. This is happening in churches here in the UK. This is happening in churches with whom we as a local church and the Vineyard as a movement have had close relationship with over a number of years. Uh, many of you will have heard that recently uh, Mike Pilavacci, who's, who's been a friend of the Vineyard for many years, spoken at a number of vineyard conferences and events. You will have heard that he's been subject to a Church of England national safeguarding investigation following allegations of um, his leadership style, uh, into his leadership style and his con conduct. And we haven't spoken publicly about this, as you'll know. We did write to the small group leaders and the house group leaders when the allegations were first made. We've worked with the trustees to kind of review our policies and procedures around how we handle complaints, especially against those in leadership, especially those things that might pertain to, say, someone in a position like Kate and myself. I uh, just want to read a little bit from the Safeguarding Report's conclusion. It says this. It says, The Church of England investigation into abuse of power and spiritual abuse by Mike Pilavacci has now concluded and found the complaints to be substantiated. The safeguarding investigation team concluded that he used his spiritual authority to control people and that his coercive and controlling behavior led to inappropriate relationships, the physical wrestling of youths, and massaging of young male interns. As a result, the national safeguarding team has initiated a complaint under the clergy disciplinary measure, that's a Church of England uh, device against uh, Pilavacci, who's resigned uh, from his role at Soul Survivor, no longer has license to minister in the Church of England, and further investigations continue into the conduct of other church leaders involved in Soul Survivor. Uh, both the uh, National Safeguarding Team and Soul Survivor Statements pay tribute to the courage of those who have come forward and have apologized for the hurt caused and uh, they've said that victim survivors have been offered support and counseling. You know, it takes a great deal of courage for people to come forward when they've been victims of any kind of abuse. In this case, uh, spiritual abuse from someone in a trusted position of church leadership. But each time those who have been victims speak truth, it makes it easier for others to speak and to be believed. But it's unbelievably costly to those courageous individuals and to their families and to their loved ones. 
uh, a woman called Jane Chivu, I don't know how to pronounce her name, she's a um, co-founder of an organization called Survivors Voices. She wrote this, she said, reporting abuse as a survivor is terrifying, exhausting, and re-traumatizing. To be met with silence or minimalization compounds the hurt and harm. It tells victims that they are disbelieved or not important, that people don't care or can't face the truth. It tells other victims, don't bother reporting anything, nothing will change. She goes on, Christian leaders must show solidarity with survivors by being strong allies and prioritizing transparency. Visible allyship is not just important to the victims who've disclosed, it sends a vital message to all those who are unable to disclose, to everyone who may have been an unwilling witness or present but unaware. It sends the message that together we will face up to this appalling and devastating truth and that we will work together until we have accountability and justice for all. Spiritual abuse wasn't just something that was happening in a church plant in Colossae sometime back then, somewhere else. Uh, spiritual abuse is happening right under our noses right now and we must do everything within our power to stamp it out in the body of Christ. Um, as I said, when we first heard of the allegations being made, we conducted a review of some of our practices and procedures here and policies here at Southwest London Vineyard. And we're really thankful, really grateful to an amazing team of trustees who've helped us. And we've had some excellent outside external support from experts in the field who've helped us with that uh, review. And hopefully you will have talked about this in your small groups and house groups at some point. But as a result of the initial allegations against Mike Pilavecci, we put together a paper, if you like, on um, spiritual abuse, which can be found on the Southwest London Vineyard uh, website. If you go down to the bottom of the homepage where the complaints policy is and the data protection thing and all of the safeguarding is all in there. And there's a spiritual abuse thing. You can click through to that. And basically from our perspective, you know, we're committed as a church, we're committed to being open and honest and accountable before the Lord. We're wanting to actively encourage healthy and transparent relationships across the church, whether that's between members of the congregation or teams or staff or trustees or leaders. And so tackling problems, no matter how small or seemingly insignificant, is vitally important to maintaining the overall health and well-being of the church and everyone who is part of it. And so we would really encourage you, we'd really ask that you please take time to read that uh, document on the website. And if you've got any concerns, no matter how small, uh, it could be about anybody, it could be about something that you've seen, something that has happened, it could be about me, it could be about Kate, it doesn't matter, it's absolutely fine. Uh, do please get in touch with our designated safeguarding trustee whose contact details are on the website. Um, Colossians may have been written a long time ago, but it's as relevant today as it was then. I recently came across this quote from a, a Catholic publication. It says this, only when there is greater equality among all members of the church can we hope to prevent the sexual abuse and the abuse of power that characterizes this moment in the life of the church. Sadly, it's not just this moment, this abuse of power has always gone on and we all need to do everything we possibly can to put an end to it.
look to Jesus as your example of godly leadership. He is your example. He is a model. Only entrust yourself to the care of leaders who are willing to take a towel, kneel before you, and wash your feet. Uh, not going to get through this passage, um, so I'm going to have to be brief. Moving on. Verse 16, Paul then goes on to talk about their diet. We're going to change gear now. Verse 16, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. Basically what's happening uh, is there's this really strange thing going on in this church where somehow they think that they're impressing God. As I said, they're impressing God uh, and that God is looking at them more favorably because they're not eating pork chops. Uh, or, you know, they don't have a glass of wine with their supper. Uh, as if God is saying, you know, well done, good and faithful servant, keep off the pork, don't, you know, touch the demon drink, uh, and I will save you a, a special seat in heaven. That's basically the idea here, and, you know, there's no juicy rare steak washed down with a decent claret for the Colossians, uh, which is sad, because in Romans 14... Uh, one to four, Paul says that we must, meet, we must eat according to our own conscience. You know, what we're forbidden to do, according to Paul, isn't, you know, not eat pork chops or have a glass of wine. What, he's, what we're forbidden to do, according to Paul and indeed to Jesus, is we're not allowed to judge one another. We're not allowed to impose upon one another what we deem to be appropriate in terms of what we eat or drink. It's fine if we don't want to eat pork chops, but I can't tell you not to eat pork chops. Does that make sense? Or judge you or look down on you because you do eat pork chops. That's part of the problem here. You know, not only are their leaders uh, bullies, but they're also laying down the law on what people should and shouldn't eat. Um, and then it goes on in verse 16. There's this talk of special days and being judged according to a religious festival or a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. And again, what, you know, these special days were being imposed upon them. And you know, perhaps it was a mishmash of, sort of Judaism and Jewish thinking and sort of the cultural, more pagan thoughts of the day. But um, here they are, the poor, poor people in Colossae and the church in Colossae running around and going, Oh my gosh, what is it today? Is it a new moon, a half moon, a full moon, a blue moon? Or what am I supposed to do? Like, what, what's, what, what phase is the moon in? And what am I supposed to do in response to the movement of the moon? And, you know, how do I get myself spiritually aligned with the alignment of the planets? And then Paul goes on to talk about the Sabbath, you know, um, and it's probably, again, the Jewish influence of the Sabbath, which gets, why it gets mentioned here. But, you know, as the Sabbath was, was an all-important day for the Jews, the trouble is they lost sight of the fact that the Sabbath was given as a day of rest and as a day of enjoying God. It's supposed to be a, like a great day. Lots of enjoyment about who God is. The trouble is they'd, the Jews had concocted all these endless rules and laws associated with this day that was supposed to be a day of rest and it turned into the most stressful day of the week. It's like, hurry, hurry, hurry. I've got to get the food done before the sun goes down. Make sure the house is tidy. It's like, I'm exhausted. I need a day of rest to recover from all of the stuff I've had to do to prepare for this day of rest. I've had to work twice as hard to get to rest. I'm exhausted. We need a day of rest. 
Enjoying God to become a burden. You know, people were just trying to keep rules. Mark 2, 27, Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man and not the man, and not man for the Sabbath. Oh, and by the way, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And it means he can get to do whatever he wants. You know, we can get caught up in all these irrelevant things. Like, you know, is the Sabbath actually a Sunday or is it a Saturday? Or is it a Tuesday? Or is it a Wednesday evening? I'm not sure. I think it matters. Uh, churches in the East and West have come to blows over which day we should celebrate Easter. And we haven't even got close to kind of, you know, Christmas or Pentecost or any of these things. As if any of these things matter to God. The truth is that every day should be lived with the message of Christmas Day. Every day should be lived with the message of Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. Every day should be a Pentecost Day, a Pentecost Sunday for us. Days, festivals, feasts, what you eat, what you drink, on and on and on. Absolutely exhausting. And when people make a song and a dance about these things, Chances are they've fallen foul of religion. Uh, and then Paul goes on to talk about do's and don'ts. Uh, verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. You know, we don't really know what he's referring to here. It could be those pork chops again. Uh, but essentially, you know, when the focus is on prohibition or a legal kind of permission, chances are we're missing it. The focus must always be on our life together in Christ. Our life with him, our love for him, our love for one another, our love for the world in which we live. There used to be a saying knocking around, there were lots of sayings knocking around evangelical churches, but um, this one made me laugh. Um, Don't smoke, drink or chew, or go out with girls who do. The mantra to live by. Do we not have a better message than that? As the body of Christ, is that what we want to say to a dying world? Don't smoke, drink or chew, or go out with girls who do. We've got a better message than that. I do need to start. There's so much more in here about um, angels uh, uh, and the perceived sort of intermediaries. So what they were struggling with is like they were getting slightly obsessed with sort of all sorts of mysticism, Gnosticism, all kinds of stuff. And they've got these angels and they're perceiving these angels as being these intermediaries between them and God. They just needed, they felt they needed, they were being taught they needed something between them and God. It was either religion or it was some kind of mystic experience as if God was somehow removed and far away and that we need someone to act on our behalf to get to God none of which is necessary Jesus has opened up a new and living way Hebrews 10 says this therefore brothers and sisters since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we professed for he who promised is faithful. 
We don't need to go through anyone. We go straight to him. We have direct access to the throne room of God. Religion says, (laughs) some of us have access. You, however, you need a little bit of help. You, You can't really do it on your own. I mean, it's nice and sweet that you try, but you, honestly, you, you're, you're not really worthy. So you, you need you know, the priest or the pastor or the celebrity worship leader or the famous preacher or, 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 or. You know, back in Colossae, it was angels and mysticism that they thought they needed to have a real encounter with God. Today, it's the cult of Christian celebrity. Where, you know, I can't really worship in quite the same way. You know, I can't really connect with the Bible in the same way. I can't really connect with the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the same way. Unless, and then you fill in the blank with your uh, favorite, you know, the name of some sort of famous worship leader or, or some famous uh, preacher or, or some conference speaker from you know, who you look up at adoringly from uh, who's up on the stage, you know, from your place in the pews. Paul says, rubbish. It's all rubbish. We're back to that excrement word. Jesus, through the gospel, has removed every single degree of separation. Christ has removed Everything that separates us from God on the basis of his substitution, his incarnation, he has made it possible for us to have direct access to him. We don't need a priest. Don't need a pastor. Definitely don't need a celebrity worship leader to connect with God. All we need is Jesus. Jesus is all we need. Uh, Let me end with this, I promise. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said this, let your religion be less of a theory and more of a love affair. Let your religion be less of a theory and more of a love affair. Not legalism, not law, not leaders who control, not eating certain foods, not celebrating certain days, not observing certain feasts. A love affair. The message of Colossians is that the cross of Christ needs no addition. The cross of Christ needs no supplementing. There is no need to add anything to it. The cross of Christ needs nothing else. The cross of Christ is sufficient. We simply come to the cross empty-handed, broken-hearted, on bended knee and say, Lord, I need your mercy and I have nothing to bring, nothing to offer, nothing to add. It's all a gift of God's grace. Sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, sola scriptura, soli Deo gloria. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed by scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Amen. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper.